Welcome to Season 3 of the Application Security Podcast. In this episode, Robert and I interview Kevin Green from MITRE. Kevin wrote an article recently about shifting left in the world of software, and specifically with secure DevOps. So we talk about that article, and then we also get into this idea of codifying intuitions, which is another way of thinking about the security mindset. And Kevin talks to us about a few new projects at MITRE that will help you as you are building out your application security program and working with developers and testers. These are the CAWE and ATT&CK. So we hope you enjoyed this conversation we had with Kevin Green. The Application Security Podcast. Here we go. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo and Robert is with me as well as my co-host. And in this episode, we are joined by Kevin Green from the MITRE Corporation, actually. And uh, Kevin, thank you for being here today. Hey, hey guys, thanks for happy, having me and Happy New Year. Yeah, definitely. Happy New Year to you as well. And um, Kevin, yeah. I, I have to... Uh, I, I chuckle now. I remember when you and I actually met. You might not remember this, but um, we were both out at AppSec USA a couple of years ago in San Francisco, and it was during the opening. They have this opening kind of social event, and you and I were both kind of hiding from the social event in the hotel bar off to the side, and we happened to sit down to each next to each other and strike up a conversation there. So um, now I, just, I remember. Okay. I remember. We were both being antisocial to some degree in uh, <laughs> right, at right. that time, but it was great to get to meet you there, and then this conversation kind of came right out of that. So, um, so Kevin, we always start by asking our guests, what is your security origin story? So all, all great superheroes have an origin story. It's at the beginning of the comic book. From In the world of security, what's your origin story? How'd you get started in this stuff? As, as Biggie Smalls would say, it was all a dream, right? <laughs> but no, <laughs> no, I, um, I started, uh, you know, I kind of started organically. I was working at at Verizon, but well, at the time it was Bell Atlantic. And, uh, after graduating from NGIT uh, in New Jersey, I moved down to Maryland, Silver Spring, Maryland. I started working, you know, as an analyst right out of college at, uh, Bell Atlantic at the time, Verizon. And I was getting my master's degree, distance learning from NGIT, uh, cause Bell Atlantic had a facility where you could do distance learning. And I always was interested in, in security and trying to advance my career and so forth and so on. So I would, I would come in at night. I would work a full shift. I would come in at night doing change controls. Um, at the time, you know, change controls were, were at midnight, a little after midnight. And I would watch the guys who firewall updates and so forth and so on. It was a guy named Joe Morris. Uh, he was really big on proxy firewalls and stuff like that. So I kind of learned from that, that perspective and start getting into firewall stuff. Um, around that time, I, um, it was around the big boom of the dot com world. So I went to go work for a, a really small startup company, uh, that were managing firewalls for, at the time it was called PSI Net, which was an ISP provider. And then from there, I, uh, went to EY, Ernst and Young. And at that time, when I was at Ernst and Young, we were doing pen testing 
was when um, Pentestin was really, really big and really started really started out. Um, we call it ethical hacking at the time, and that's around the time where you know the guys with Foundstone was at ENY, Stuart McClure was there, George Kurtz was at ENY around that same time. So I kind of that's kind of how I started, and then eventually, you know, I wanted to evolve my career and kind of always wanted to pride myself on being well-rounded, you know, really good at different things because I wanted to do more on the consulting side. Uh, and E and Y gave me Ernst and Young, I should say, E and Y gave me the opportunity to do that. And then I just started, you know, following, you know, um, read a lot about where the market was going, and I got into AppSec, and I wanted to be in a position where I can, you know, evangelize and guide organizations and how to build AppSec programs, formalize AppSec programs. Uh, then eventually got into R&D when I went to DHS, S&T, Cybersecurity Division, and I was running a software assurance R&D program, which really opened my eyes up to a lot of things that I I took for granted. A lot of times we take certain things for granted that certain things exist, but they don't really exist until you really test them out and validate these things. And I think working with some really, really smart minds in academia like Bart Miller, Dr. James Hill, Henny Sitma from Castro, and there's a, there's a number of other folks. Uh, it really opened my eyes up to a lot of different things and really gave me a really good idea of where the state of the art was in terms of state of the art, in terms of tools and technologies, as well as state of practice. And, you know, I tried to fund really, really good sound R&D topics that really can advance not only state of practice, but state of the art. So you had a, you had an interesting kind of switch there between the private sector and then being able to go in and work for in, in the government space. So, I mean, what is the difference? Is, is there a big difference in how security is perceived and understood from the government space versus kind of the private sector that you worked in? Well, I think so. And primarily because of FISMA, uh, the whole certification accreditation process. And the fact that, you know, I always say, and I wrote an article on Dart Reading about the, the difference between security and compliance, and you could be secure and not compliant. You could be, com- be compliant and not secure. So I think a lot of times that heavy weight in terms of doing those mon- mundane tasks, uh, very, very manual, very rigorous in terms of these paper drill exercises, sometimes, uh, you know, get in a way of really doing what's best. And a lot of times, if you only got so many hours in a day, if you spend a lot of times trying to be compliant, uh, you lose cycles and resources in doing some of the, the necessary hygiene things that we see that are so essential to protecting uh, federal networks and systems and applications. So I see that's that's like a something that has to be done. But I think um, organizations struggle, agencies struggle in trying to strike the right balance uh, and, and to comply with some of the federal mandates that they have to comply with. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, everybody, everybody seems to still be struggling at this point. You know, um, we kind of focus in on the world of AppSec and, and looking at it through that lens. But, you know, it's hard to find somebody who's really killing it right now where you can go, you know, that organization right there is really doing a great job with everything because we all know the next vulnerability is a week or two weeks away that we probably don't even know about today. So that's the fun right. in, in what we do. So you, you had a recent article here on Dark Reading where you were talking about this idea of shifting left. And so what I want to spend the bulk of our time here today is really understanding, with you kind of explaining what does that actually mean? 
Um, a lot of our listeners are relatively new to the world of AppSec, and they may not have ever, they may not even really truly grasp this concept. So let's start with this idea of shifting left. When you say shifting left, Kevin, what do you actually mean? Well, you know, well, first of all, shifting left. I mean, you know, in industries, you know, you have to be somewhat think about things in in, in a realistic way because a lot of buzzwords, a lot of different um, jargons are always thrown around and people don't quite understand it. But, you know, I thought it was very necessary for me to, um, especially because, you know, working in different different realms of AppSec and software assurance, you know, I have a different perspective on, you know, where where the gaps exist. Not saying that my way or my view is the perfect way, but I think I have a unique view coming from the R&D side, coming from an operation side and coming from a pro- program side as well. So shifting left to me is fundamentally the way we think about security. It's a mindset. You know, it's not a, it's not a catchy phrase that we often hear. Build security and shift left. Those are all catchy phrases. But at the end of the day, what I really wanted to get across in the article is, is a mindset that has to be pervasive throughout the software development lifecycle and security must be at a conversation, must be to see at the table, uh, and must lead the way to a certain extent. Because at the end of the day, when we build requirements, we have to we have to have uh, security in the conversation. So we're building good security requirements so that we can build good design so that now we can take the design and implement it correctly in software and in code. So that's kind of my 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 focus is shifting left. You know, obviously, with the whole DevOps or secure DevOps uh, phenomenon that's going on, a lot of what we're here is is continuing integration, CICD pipelines. Well, shifting left is moving further left from that, even from that process. Uh, I think we were on, I was on Twitter maybe a month ago and my buddy, um, Jim Manico, uh, said that you can't test, you can't always test security in into, you know, you can't test security in because oftentimes, um, 50%, I should say, of security issues come from design, design architectural issues. So if the 50% of actual security issues come from design, then how are we addressing design? We have to move further left. Uh, and I think, you know, we start from the beginning and build the right mindset where there's a shared responsibility across not only the product team, but developers, security architects, operation folks. I think we do a better job at, you know, one, reducing the tax surface and also reducing risk that's associated with poorly developed, poor designed software. And uh, Jim, Jim is a good friend of the show. He's actually been on, uh, was on two times last season to talk about different stuff with uh, OWASP Top 10 and then the Proactive Controls Project. And he'll be back with us again in a couple of, of episodes to talk about this OWASP Cheat Sheet Project. So um, he's, a, he's a great one to quote and a great resource for us in the, in the world of application security. Right. So, I, you know, I was motivated by... Um, so many issues that we see in industry uh, regarding to everyone wants to do DevOps. And I think over a period of time, you know, we're moving faster, we're building faster, but is security keeping up? I think that has been one of the biggest challenges we've seen is security keeping up with the way, the rate in which we're developing software. Um, we're moving at a very, very, very fast pace. Um, so with these rapid release cycles, that's part of the whole DevOps movement. So security has to be, you know, at the forefront of everything that we do. So, yeah. So, and one of the, one of the big challenges that I've seen in working with different organizations that are, that are attempting to move into this DevOps kind of space 
And, um, especially with, with teams that are established in the world of DevOps before they start to think about application security is, is really the, um, it's just the speed of which they're doing things. Um, they're really, so, so what have you seen when in your travels here as far as what are the challenges that people are putting up or, or the, you know, what, what are they, what are the excuses that folks are giving for why they can't shift left? Well, one of the biggest fundamental things I think people just don't know how. <laughs> they don't have a good strategy. Um, and, and, and that becomes the crux of the problem. And, you know, once the train gets moving, you know, it's, is very and it gets some momentum. It's very hard to slow it down. Yep. So from from the onset, I think you know not having a really really good sound strategy is one of the biggest uh, issues that I see. That you know you, you you know you set yourself up to fail when you don't have a good approach, a good plan, a good strategy in place on how security should be governed throughout the entire process. The other thing is you know tools just don't perform well. I mean we start talking about AppSec tools, specifically static analysis, and even some of the web application uh, security testing tools, they just don't perform well. The coverage areas is very narrow to a certain extent. Uh, these tools have not kept pace with the rate the rate in which modern software is being developed. So people get frustrated with the tools. These tools uh, generate a lot of false positives, and because they generate a lot of false pos- positives, Developers get frustrated because obviously you have to spend so much time doing triage, finding the actual security vulnerabilities that really matter, you know, amongst a, 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 a wealth of false information. Um, so they take the tool out the tool chain and stop using it. And now we're building software and we don't have the proper tools to provide the necessary assurance levels that our software can be trusted and that we did a good job at testing it for potential weaknesses that can expose vulnerabilities in software. So I see that as a a, a reoccurring theme, no matter where I go, uh, is one, not having a good plan or approach, and two, uh, we want to move fast, but automation is a big part of it. But how do you automate security testing tools when the tools don't perform well, perform well? So I think that has been, you know, a core a core problem um, in terms of trying to, you know, shift left. But even beyond that, you know, people uh, just don't communicate well in organizations, whether it's the product team with the security team, these silos, these barriers, you, you know, you, you gotta go in this thing all in or it won't work. Meaning you can't wink, wink, give a wink, wink and nod and not be fully committed to building the necessary collaboration and communication that will break down those silos so that security is really a shared responsibility. So I think those are some fundamental issues. Fundamental issues that I see are some of the struggles that we we get when we try to shift left. Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna guess based on that the, a couple of statements you made that you're not super popular with the tool crowd. Is that uh, <laughs> based on just no. making those making making that? And, and I agree with you. I don't think you're wrong. I'm just saying they're so, probably not inviting you to their open houses. No, so I, I'm I'm you know it, from an industry standpoint, I think I'm. I have pretty good relations, relationships with Chris Wasopo, folks from Sigital, folks from HP. I mean, I have pretty good relationships with those guys. Um, I just think, um, from where I'm looking, from my perspective and where I've been the last five and a half years, you know, I, and working with some really, really smart folks in computer science and academia, 
I mean, there's a lot to, to I mean, there's a lot of improvements that needs to be made from the static analysis tools as well as some of the web applications and security testing tools. And one of the biggest problems is when you buy a tool, you don't know what the tool can and cannot do. You, you don't have any ground truth in terms of what the tool can actually cover. So that, I think from the start, I think that's a big problem. So if I'm, but if, so it becomes a problem of what tool is the right tool that best match my software assurance needs. And without having any really good insight into that, you can potentially buy a tool that's not the right tool. Yeah. So one of the things I was trying to do with my stamp project, which is a static tool analysis modernization project when I was at DHS, is really try to remove those barriers, uh, create a little bit more transparency in that process, and have a way to provide labels, I should say, inter- and those labels provide the key attributes and characteristics of the tools. And with the, you know, basically, here's the sweet spot of the tools. So now when people want to go use static analysis tools, they can best, they can now select the best tool that matches their software assurance needs. Yeah, I think, and I think you're, I think you're, you're, I think you're right on in that approach. Um, I've seen so many different companies that have tools and they're just not even using them. They, they have them so that they can say, Hey, yeah, we, we have that tool. Uh, but they're not actually scanning any other code with it because they can't make it work because they didn't get the right tool to begin with to do the job. So, um, so yeah, that, that's a great, uh, great, great approach you took there. And that, that really does help the industry. So I want to, um, kind of, uh, ask a question here about there, there's a, a term that you used in the article and it was codifying intuitions. And so I'm fascinated by what what you kind of mean by codifying intuition. So would you um, unpack that a little bit for us and give us some perspective on that and what that means? So sure. Uh, you know, another colleague of mine, David Molner, who's a security researcher at Microsoft, uh, they have a video uh, that I was watching and the video talked about what can security learn from AI, artificial intelligence. And I heard this term codify intuition. And as I, started watching the video, I was like, wow, okay. But the way in which they were using it, they were using it more from the adversarial side, more around APT and how machine learning can help uh, provide, you know, some, some, some traction, some gains and help solve some issues that you see on that side of, 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 uh, of the, of the problem space. So I, I began to think and, and ponder like, wow, like what if we, leverage the same concept and I was motivated by that as we relates to software development, but more so where the article talks about is more on the DevOps side. And one of the unique things that, you know, as I was, you know, researching the whole concept of intuition and and the whole notion of what it means to to uh codify intuitions, I should say, um, I came across something that uh that Einstein had had mentioned in one of the things when he started talking about intuition. And what he says is, you know, our intuition is basically the outcome of earlier intellectual experiences. So then I said in the article, you know, so many of us build software, break software, fix software, where the case may be. These are things that are part of us. We are learning as we are breaking, building software. These become part of our intellectual experiences. So why can't we take those things and relay it to the way in which we develop software? So I kind of said, okay, you know, this is a, this is a very unique 
concept that I want to kind of, you know, start evangelizing around the whole DevOps space and specifically around shifting left. And the way we think about the problem space, complex problems, you know, requires some creativity, some curiosity, and our intuition has to lead us, our past experiences, which is our intuition, have to lead us to building better software. So how do you codify that into the process early and often? And one of the things I mentioned in the article is, is there was a researcher, uh, that was part of the talk. Um, and, um, he is currently, I think he's at Georgia Tech, I believe. And he was talking about, I think he interviewed, uh, a known hacker, um, Zhang Wang Li, I believe. I'm, uh, hopefully I'm not mispronouncing it. Um, and he asked them, like, how do you find exploitable vulnerabilities? And, and, and part of what he said was his tuition, intuition leads him to find some of these exploitable vulnerabilities, basically his past experiences. I said, wow, if that can happen from the attacker and adversarial side, why can't we then, you know, transform that into doing it, doing it early in the process, be more proactive how we address uh, software development, especially as it relates to the DevOps. So that's kind of how that concept came about. I was looking at it a video from a Microsoft uh, uh, presentation I thought was very unique and interesting. I wanted to kind of put a twist on it from from the whole software development side. I like that because uh, I was thinking and looking at the article as well that you related that also to threat modeling and architecture and design and and thinking through intuition and applying that. And I, I've done that myself uh, in thinking about threat modeling and and using my past experiences with development, architecture, and thinking about how do you then apply those things to software security or thinking about security in the software. Um, I like that tie-in. That's that's a uh, It makes sense to me. I like that. Because think about it. I mean, you know, most hackers, you know, they, they, they've seen something somewhere or they came across something somewhere that leads them to try something and not knowingly, they, they don't really equated to their past experience, their intuition, which lead them to do the things that they do. So I, I just think, you know, you know, you mentioned threat modeling. I think threat modeling has been the one capability has been undervalued, underappreciated. And I do see it, as I mentioned in my talk, my keynote at DevSecCon, is that threat modeling can now become an engine and in, and really improve the efficiency of how we do testing. And I've kind of alluded to that um, in the article uh, because, you know, a lot of times these tools don't have context that is needed to really uh, make sense of the data that they have. So if we can now pivot the tool into area, areas of the application that are sensitive, then we can be more guide. We can guide these tools to do to be more efficient in their testing, and that's kind of the whole uh, notion of what I mentioned in terms of, you know, the the role in which I think threat modeling is playing. But specific to the article, you know, if, if we can potentially leverage user stories and kind of, you know, this all ties into a certain extent to threat modeling. Use user stories, right, and then develop the right abuse and misuse cases. To validate those user stories, uh, we have a better idea of how to build the functionality that's been requested securely. We, we want to do it securely, right? 
So that that that's kind of how I see. I would like to see, uh, you know, sort certain organizations or organizations in general approach uh, shifting left and really using uh, this method. You know, each time a, a product manager have new features and functionality, I think the whole team needs to think about it from a security perspective and use the user stories and misuse and abuse cases to really uh, model threats for those new features and functionality that needs to be added. Yeah, that sounds sounds like really good advice there. And uh, Kevin, so kind of when in as you were closing out the article here, you had a couple of different um, activities that you describe, practices and standards that you describe people take a look at here um, to help them with the threat modeling and the sh- whole shifting left kind of idea. Um, the first one, I, I be honest, I've I'm been in around AppSec for the last decade or so, and um, I wasn't aware of the first one. So the first one that I saw on this list here was common architectural weakness enumeration. So I'm certainly familiar with CWE, common weaknesses, uh, but I hadn't seen the CAWE. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how folks could use it? So sure. So that that was something that I funded, initially funded when I was at DHS, uh, S&T, as a program manager. I wanted to really... Um, understand, you know, the impact of, of design decisions uh, in terms of security. Like what what role does design decisions play in introducing vulnerabilities to 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 the development process, right? So the common the CAW the CAWE, common architectural weakness enumeration, basically is a way to help developers think about the consequences of their development activities or refactoring uh, decisions on the overall design of the system. So over a period of time, if I have a design and the security patterns as are in, that are part of the design, uh, and the developer has to implement those security features and tactics into code, if they're implementing the design wrong in code, over a period of time, that design erodes, which creates, you know, an exposure of the attack surface, which creates vulnerabilities. So that was the whole notion of you know, the reason why I initially funded some work like that, but I do think that because we are looking from the design perspective, there's ways to codify these things into user stories and use CAWEs to do that. Okay. And you also talked about, um, you know, with user stories, how you can use CAPAC and um, the AT&T and CK uh, kind of from the codifying intuitions perspective here. So, um, I think our listeners and, you know, I know I'm familiar with CAPAC. Um, AT&T and CK was a new one that I hadn't seen either. So KPEC and Attack are basically work products for MITRE. Uh, KPEC really focuses on weaknesses types and their attributes across the kill chain. Uh, Attack focuses on platform specific observed adversary tactics and techniques, basically focus, focusing uh, on characterizing, describing post-compromise uh, adversary behavior. So that's kind of uh, the, the the brief definition of both. So if we can use KPAC, basically is essentially the weakness types and the attributes across the kill chain to develop really, really good misuse and abuse cases, and then also leverage attack to really look at the post-compromise adversary behavior, then we can do, then we can determine whether or not, you know, the extent to which whatever we're trying to build 
the impact it has on security. So that's kind of the whole notion of using uh, KPEC and attack to really build really good, you know, misuse cases to see to see if whatever is being offered up can be abused in a way that compromises security before it's actually designed. Right. So that's that's kind of the notion behind that. You no. Know, so one of the things that I think is important to look at is, you know, you know, you know, what's the impact of authorization, authentication? Like, what are these different type of things that are very vital to security? Uh, or what are the trust balance of the system? And how can, you know, a service be abused or misused to gain uh, unauthorized or elevated privileges? Uh, so it's, it's looking at these type of things before the system is even developed uh, to give people a better sense of what additional security needs to be in place, what additional security controls need to be in place, and what are some design decisions that need to be made up front about whatever functionality and features that, that needs to be developed. Did that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense, and that helps to um, help, helps me to understand how attack, and, and I plus I know now that I'm supposed to say attack and not ATNTCK, um, so that helps me to sound cooler in the AppSec community as well. But um, it definitely helps to understand how those two fit together, and it almost seems like somebody needs to build a tool that includes both the CAPIC and the attack together and allows you to model your design against those two data sources. Sounds like just to me, sounds like that'd be a really, a really cool type of um, technology innovation to help engineers or software developers be able to see the impact of the decisions that they make. Well, one of the things that MITRE is doing now is, is building a unified attack framework to allow uh, tool vendors to leverage this to do to do these type of things so you know think of it as being too agnostic and in, in any tool can potentially leverage this framework uh to either you know build on top of it uh build you know use the synergies that's part of the, the the framework uh to really look at you know the different risk and threats that are associated with systems applications and networks Okay. Yeah, that sounds cool. I, I look forward to uh, taking a look at that when it's. Is, is that something that's out now, or that's something that's in development? Uh, that's something that out, that is out now. You can go to uh, https backslash backslash kpec org, and you can get information there. And I think attack is the same attack that org, and you should get information about. Uh, both of those really, really unique and really cool uh, work products that we've developed um, through our sponsors. Okay, awesome. So, as well as, as well as, and I should say, as well as community involvement. Yeah. Don't don't want to leave out the community. You know? Yeah, the community is huge in anything. It's hard to so do they, anything that's that doesn't have community they, involvement. They're very they're very vital to uh, allowing some of these uh, um, projects, some of these. Uh, community things to really be vibrant and have a, a, a lasting impact in the community. I mean, obviously adoption, uh, is important. Tech transition, tech transition is very important. So the community becomes very vital to, to allowing these things to grow organically grow. And we need feedback and we need the community to continue to do what they do, uh, to support these work products so that we can, you know, help improve. Software insurance practices. Yeah, 
Cool. Well, uh, we'll put a we'll put a uh, link to the dark reading article in the show notes here, so our listeners can go and read the full kind of explanation. But uh, Kevin, thank you for taking the time today to take us through this conversation of shifting left and DevOps and codifying intuitions. Um, lots of really good stuff here, and I know our listeners will appreciate it. I know Robert and I both appreciate it. So thank you for taking the time today. Hey, Robert, Chris has been a pleasure. Um, Chris has been it's been a minute and I'm glad you have me on and uh, I enjoy what you guys are doing continue continue the good work and much much success in 2018 thanks for listening to the application security podcast if you enjoy the podcast please do us a favor and visit the iTunes store and give us a five star rating our intro music is 8-Bit Kung Fu by Born and TJ and the outro is Southern Delight by Stefan Kartenberg. You can find us on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at www.appsecpodcast.org.